Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Fortunately, it starts with slavery. Doctors relied on slave owners for financial stability. They accompanied plantation masters to auctions to verify the fitness of slaves and were called in to treat sick slaves to protect their owners' investments. In 1807, Congress abolished the importation of slaves and in turn pushed black women to have more children, to essentially breed slaves. Founding father Thomas Jefferson later wrote, I consider a woman who brings a child every two years as more profitable than the best man on the farm. Around the 1830s, the abolitionist movement led to the rise of what was called Negro medicine, or efforts to identify black inferiority to justify slavery. And there were polygenists, who tried to use both science and the Bible to find proof that races evolved from different origins. The 1830s also marked the beginning of recorded experimentation on black women's bodies. One doctor performed experimental C-sections on slaves. Another one perfected the dangerous ovariotomy, or removal of an ovary by testing the procedure on slave women. In fact, half the original articles in the 1836 Southern Medical and Surgical Journal dealt with experiments on black people. loop here and we got to get ourselves out of it and we got to get out out quick when we come to it we must confess that we are the possible we are the miraculous the true wonder of this world that is when and only when we come to it America's chickens coming home. You're gonna sing to swim, you're gonna learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. That is a free strike law and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse. 
discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening, and thank you for joining us here tonight at our Common Ground. So glad to have you with us. Um, It's been a tough week um, in those four spheres of my brain. I'm trying to process what has occurred in the U.S. Senate chambers all week, and we'll be talking about some of that. Tonight, joining us in our second hour will be Dr. James Taylor, the Our Common Ground political science or politics analyst. Uh, and I hope you'll stay with us. I, I, I really, you know, when I talk about the four spheres of my brain, uh, it really is all about how those spheres uh, converge. And we take in a lot of information um, over a period of 24 hours, uh, either reading books, listening to news, listening to our neighbors, listening to our family. And um, it takes uh, some time to to process all of that, especially uh, during this pandemic. Uh, I have noticed, and I don't know how many of you out there uh, have noticed uh, uh, altered sleep patterns. I'm, I've am i been a, uh, a night owl uh, for most of my life, um, which means that I await the world to go uh, hibernate for a couple of hours, and then I can settle down and begin to process begin to look at, to examine all of my experiences, all of my thoughts. Um, Generally, my uh, bedtime is around 2 or 2.30 each morning. Uh, Even when I was working in an office full-time and had to be in the office, well, I was the last one always to roll up in there uh, by 9.30. And... um, so I've noticed this pattern where when even I go to bed very, very tired and I close my eyes and my eyes begin to act as a, as an on switch to the four spheres of my brain and no matter what I do. So my during the pandemic, because I'm not engaging personally, physical engagement with as many, with people uh, as much as often. You know, you do a lot of processing of thoughts and feelings when you are uh, engaging with people. So uh, I close my eyes. It's an on switch for my brain, one of those fears, and uh, I've had an awful lot of what is considered chronic insomnia, 
which gives me a lot of time. What you know, one of the things that I don't do is torture myself by trying to count backwards from a hundred or count or say the alphabets from Z backwards to A. I don't do that kind of thing. I simply get up and do some stuff, do things that I felt like I didn't get a chance uh, to do during the day. I don't know why since uh, my retirement I feel as rushed and have as much anxiety about having enough time uh, to accomplish everything I want to accomplish in a day and maybe part of that has to do with uh, the um, uh, psychopathy of um, or the pathology of overachievers which uh, I uh, consider myself one of them. But anyway, we we persevere, and I hope that you have been uh, sitting in on the four-part lecture that we are sponsoring as part of uh, the celebration of 2021 Black History Month, or Negro History Month, with Dr. James Taylor, who's going to be with us later, um, because it has been riveting. Uh, as he, uh, in, the, in the second episode or session of the four-part lecture series, which takes place here at Our Common Ground on Thursdays at 8 p.m., it has been absolutely knowledge-based and and spirit-filled. This man's love of black people, his knowledge of our history, his, his, his ability to weave our stories as they are connected from the past to the present uh, with the many, many people who have contributed to the uplift of our story. It's unbelievable. He had me in here weeping. He was talking about W.E.B. Du Bois and David Walker on Thursday night, and I was listening with tears streaming down my face as he talked about the power of who we are as a people and how much of our victories we seem to let fall in the cracks. If you're just joining us and you'd like to join us in our our Common Ground chat room, uh, you can come to our Common Ground. No, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And later on I'm going to talk about ourcommonground.com because I'm fighting off advertisers, uh, people who come into my website and make comments, drop their advertisements, trolls, white supremacists who want to, uh, who think and believe somehow they can uh, be an uh, impediment to the work that we do. I do this. Um, I have been, for those of you who are new to our common ground, We've been on the air for 34 years. We've had some interruptions, not a lot. 
when the when the slave catchers was behind me, I took off a couple of months to try to make sure that I had uh, some security going into my retirement. But we are here. Uh, tonight is our 49th episode of Our Common Ground. You know, I count. I keep a journal of every one of these shows. Things I want to talk about, things I said, things I should have said, things I did say that I shouldn't have said. So uh, um, this is my life's work. It is not my professional life. I am um, MIT uh, trained at the Sloan School of Management. I spent a great deal of my career as a corporate executive for those who want to know more about me. Uh, I am a graduate of, oh, wait a minute, I just have to say this, let me say this, (laughs) one of Donald Trump's um, Senate trial defense lawyers, and I attended the same law school, Uh, and I was just ashamed of this clown, I just, he was shameful, Uh, he was shameful in the sense that he would even agree. He was the only only real defense attorney uh, because the others were liability lawyers uh, who are accustomed to, who whose craft in the law is to wrap um, pretty pictures around lies. And that was Castor and the rest of them. But Bruce Schoen was just, I was just embarrassed. And I got some email from some of my law school um, colleagues, um, classmates, and we had a discussion of his shameful, disgraceful performance. He wasn't even lowering well on top of all the other stuff, on top of uh, Donald Trump probably told him he couldn't wear a yarmulke. So he was covering his head when he took, with his hand, when he took a sip of water. He had applied to the Senate a request, submitted a uh, request to the Senate uh, to have the proceedings not be on his Sabbath, which was today, because he is a practicing um, uh, uh, member of the Jewish faith. They approved it, and then he uh, he withdrew the request. You know that was Donald Trump? But anyway, I, I digress. I said I was going to even talk about the former president, but I digress. You can't help but talk about him because um, one of the things I do want to mention, and I'll talk with Dr. Uh, Taylor about it, if I can. Y'all know what I mean. Um, So um, is that some, these young house members, house managers, and the more seasoned ones, they did some masterful lawyering. You know, one of the the, the job of a of a 
of a of the prosecution is to paint a picture and tell a story inside that picture. And I got to tell you, Jamie Raskin and his team, they did that in a stellar way. And in the second hour, we'll talk with you more about it. Our number, if you'd like to come into our studio, is 347-838-9852. As we always do, and before I forget, uh, I I do want to... um, I give you an update on the COVID pandemic. There are currently, now listen to this, CDC is reporting 27,229,862 cases. But the COVID tracker, which is a, a project, tracker project, uh, they are reporting 28 million And I'm trying to figure out uh, how that difference occurred. But anyway, we're going to go with the 28,196,964 total cases since the pandemic pandemic has been tracked. And... um, 
And then he he tells it so personal. And he says, hey, this is real personal for me. I love my people. And that is how I have learned their history. And that is how I can see their victories. And and, And one of the things that he talked about on Thursday night with such passion was um, an Our Common Ground voice that we interviewed back in way back in the 90s, Dr. Vincent Harding. There, the book is There is a River. And if you have not read that, I mean, since we've been on the Internet, we did have her daughter, his daughter after his death, Rachel Harding, um, um, with us uh, during uh, one of our broadcasts. Um, because this book is so important, and we can talk about that. It's There is a River by Dr. Vincent Harding. Um, and, And to hear someone talk about how important that book was, to hear someone weave the relationships between W.E.B. Du Bois and others in academia and why he ended up at Fisk and why he ended up at the University of Berlin. You can't can't put a price on learning black history in that kind of context. So I, I really suggest that, that you join us, um, we only have a little bit. I've, I've been doing a lot of talking. I don't know why I'm doing so much talking. Uh, but um, tonight in this page, we're going to be talking about um, darkness in American medicine, surviving medical apartheid. We we did uh, a show back in April uh, with Dr. Uh, Karma uh, Jones, Kamara Jones, and... Dr. Taylor and uh, Dr. Deidre uh, Cooper Owens about this, but like the history of U.S. policing, the history of medicine and healthcare in the U.S. is marked by racial injustice and myriad forms of violence, unequal access to healthcare, the segregation of medical facilities, and the exclusion of African Americans from medical education. And these are some of the most obvious examples. These with if you if you put them together with inequalities in housing, employment opportunities, wealth and social service provisions, it it, it you cannot deny that it it is a production of disproportionate health disparities for black people. The health communities need to confront these painful histories, and and our uh, our common ground theme for this Black uh, History Month 2021 has been in looking at what we survived, what we endured, what we survived, and yet we achieved. So, Black self determination is told in the history of American medicine as well. And this history lays waste to the assumption that white supremacy in our medical past was simply 
of its times. Nor, nor, it, it, it just dispels that. Nor were black, indigenous, and people of color passive victims of oppression. Black people. Counter-narratives offer sustenance in the present confluence of the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Power movement, that a better future is possible. And I am declaring that um, since we have a former president who is a narcissist and and a sociopath, that now is the time for us to begin to declare that we are in a Black Power reparations movement era. So I'm placing the efforts front and center of medical history to allow us to understand, to allow us to understand that this too is black history. At the edge of Central Park in Manhattan, There's a bronze statue of a doctor named James Marion Sims, whose brilliant achievement carried the fame of American surgery throughout the entire world. He's the guy who created the vaginal speculum, an instrument gynecologists use for examination. He pioneered the surgical repair for fistula, a complication from childbirth, and became known as the father of modern gynecology. But that brilliant achievement was the result of a series of excruciating experimental surgeries that he conducted on enslaved women. In a lot of ways, Sims epitomizes the story of American medicine for black women. It's a system that's failing them to this day. From infant mortality to life expectancy, the racial disparities in healthcare are staggering. The gulf between black and white might be widest when we look at maternal mortality, with black women three to four times more likely to die in connection with pregnancy or birth than white women. And that divide can be traced back to doctors like Sims, who contributed to a long, largely overlooked history of institutional racism in medicine. Trying to understand a historical problem without knowing its history is like trying to treat a patient without eliciting a thorough medical history. You're doomed to failure. That's Harriet Washington, a medical ethicist and author who chronicled the intersection of race and medicine in her book, Medical Apartheid. While many of the stark racial disparities in healthcare can be attributed to environmental and economic factors like access to good healthcare, studies show that minority patients tend to receive a lower quality of care than non-minorities, even when they have the same types of health insurance or the same ability to pay for care. As African Americans, we've been abused for so long, consistently by the system, why should we trust it? Why should we go to it when ill? And that's iatrophobia. That's a fear of the healer, you know, inculcated by the behavior of those healers, unfortunately. It starts with slavery. Doctors relied on slave owners for financial stability. They accompanied plantation masters to auctions to verify the fitness of slaves and were called in to treat sick slaves to protect their owners' investments. In 1807, Congress abolished the importation of slaves and in turn pushed black women to have more children, to essentially breed slaves. Founding father Thomas Jefferson later wrote, I consider a woman who brings a child every two years as more profitable than the best man on the farm. 
Around the 1830s, the abolitionist movement led to the rise of what was called Negro medicine, or efforts to identify black inferiority to justify slavery. And there were polygenists who tried to use both science and the Bible to find proof that races evolved from different origins. The 1830s also marked the beginning of recorded experimentation on black women's bodies. One doctor performed experimental C-sections on slaves. Another one perfected the dangerous ovariotomy, or removal of an ovary by testing the procedure on slave women. In fact, half the original articles in the 1836 Southern Medical and Surgical Journal dealt with experiments on black people. And then, of course, there was James Marion Sims, whose reputation is etched in history and on that statue in Central Park. Between 1845 and 1849, Sims began performing experimental surgeries on a 17-year-old slave named Anarka. He eventually performed 30 operations on Anarka and more surgeries on about 11 other female slaves. When his male colleagues could no longer bear to assist him in inflicting pain on the women, the slaves took turns restraining one another. Yet paintings depicting Sims, Anarka, and other slave women presented a subdued version of his experiments. Even though anesthesia was introduced in 1846, Sims chose not to use it for his experimentation with slaves. His practices echoed one of the most prevalent and dangerous beliefs in medicine at the time, that black people did not feel pain or anxiety. This book from 1851, titled The Natural History of Human Species, claimed the American dark races bear with indifference tortures insupportable to a white man. Studies released as recently as last year demonstrate that black people are less likely to be treated for pain, particularly in the ER. There's even one from a children's hospital that found the same to be true for kids. And just this year, Pearson Education, a leading educational publisher, issued an apology and recalled nursing textbooks that included racist stereotypes, like this section that said black people often report higher pain intensity than other cultures. Well, what does it mean when you say that someone doesn't feel pain? Among other things, you're speaking about their humanity. These are all part of that suite of beliefs emanating from the 19th century that we still have not shaken off. Despite all our knowledge and sophistication, they're deeply ingrained. Doctors like Sims might fit the Dr. Frankenstein stereotype, but they weren't outliers. Historically, Southern doctors who used black bodies for troubling experiments were the norm. It's a very common question. How can we judge our forebears? You know, those guys in the 18th century who practiced medicine in a way that appalls us today. You know, we think, how could you do that? I did not judge the practitioners based on our own ethics. I judged them based on the ethics of their time. It was not acceptable back then. We just did not hear from the people who protested against it. After the Civil War ended, the 1900s brought a wave of immigrants to the U.S. It sparked a race panic and coincided with the birth of the American eugenics movement. One of the movement's key objectives was to reduce the childbearing potential of the poor and disabled. Leaders included birth control pioneer and Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger, who eventually devised the controversial Negro Project, or family planning centers that pushed birth control in the Black South. It was a project that even garnered support from W.E.B. Du Bois, a founder of the NAACP, who wrote that black people bred carelessly and disastrously. By the mid-1930s, more than half the states passed pro-sterilization laws, and often sterilization was forced. In 1961, future civil rights leader Fannie Lou Hamer went to the hospital to have a tumor removed, but was subjected to a hysterectomy without consent. 
The procedure, which rendered women infertile without their knowledge, was so common in the South that Hamer is said to have dubbed it the Mississippi appendectomy. African-American babies were no longer economically valuable. And African-Americans themselves had gone from being a resource to a nuisance. In June of 1973, the SPLC uncovered 100 to 150,000 cases of women who had been sterilized with federal funds in Alabama. Half the women were black. In recent decades, women of color continue to be exposed to dubious reproductive health programs. In December 1990, the FDA approved a contraceptive called Norplant, and it was selectively marketed to black teenagers in Baltimore schools. You know, one of the current birth control methods now in the United States is Norplant. Norplant fans like David Duke, the former KKK Grand Wizard, even introduced legislation to give women on welfare an annual reward of $100 if they agreed to get Norplant. And it's time we start to encourage welfare mothers to be responsible. That bill never passed. But the implant ignited a debate on whether long-term contraception, like Norplant that lasted five years, could be used as a form of social engineering when pushed to specific communities. Today, as we continue to lose black mothers at alarming rates, a deeper look at the past may be a good step towards creating a more equitable healthcare system. Hi guys, thanks for watching. Of course, there's a lot more to the history of how the US medical system has mistreated people of color than we could fit in the video. Everything from the Tuskegee experiments to Jim Crow laws segregating hospitals. But we hope it starts to give some context to the racial disparities we see in medicine today. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Publica, uh, the uh, digital publication uh, for that overview to help us understand. You know, one of the things why history is so important to understand is we understand the connection as certain kinds of oppressive elements and features within white supremacy move with history. You know, I, I love the um, um, Amanda Gorman's poem. Um, I can't think of the name of it, but she was the young youth, uh, the youth laureate who spoke at the inauguration of um, President Joe Biden, and she said, "We step." It is important to understand how we step into history and repair it. But you, in the report that you just heard from ProPublica, if you listen to the names, W.E.B. Du Bois, if you listen to the names, David Duke, if you listen to the names, Fannie Lou Hamer, you understand how History is really a continuum. And in 
the history of medicine for black people in this country continues. I, I, I didn't report tonight, but if you will recall that last week I reported that 15% of all the deaths in the COVID-19 um, pandemic were black people. And now you are seeing current event news reporting that black people, while they have been experienced the worst of the pandemic as compared to other races, the access to the vaccine and to treatments are much less. So when you hear the name of David Duke and you understand that David Duke supported the campaign for Donald Trump, whether his handlers wanted you to know it or not, that is what you're dealing with. You heard him say, welfare mothers have to have, that's simply eugenics. That's simply a, a, a form of genocide uh, that uh, we mentioned earlier as we went into this. Um, and, and, and to hear that medical specialties, specialties relied on experimentation on enslaved people and their labor, people like James Marion Sims, hear the names, He was the founder of U.S. gynecology, and he experimented on enslaved women, forcing them to perform domestic duties and serve as nurses in his clinic, while at the same time using them as experimental victims. So we have to be real clear about what history means and why we say history matters. Because one of the things that we have to do in formulating names and framing the movements which are the strategic points of progress for our people, is to understand how history informs it. It's hard to know what first piqued my interest in looking at the history of ethics as it pertained to African Americans and their treatment by the medical institutions in this country. But I know that... um, my initial desire to be a physician and working in hospitals for over 10 years certainly sharpened that interest. I saw many things that troubled me and disturbed me, many questions I had about the interactions between individual patients and clinicians. And I actually found that clinicians were often very open about discussing with me their own trepidation about the way they um, felt constrained to treat patients. But it was... um, a really interesting experience I had that I recount in medical apartheid when I was running a poison control center in a hospital in upstate New York 
we were allowed to have extra space. It was seated to us by radiology. And I also found an old file cabinet that I knew I could use in my office. So I'm opening this file cabinet, cleaning it out, and I found all these old filed folders of patients that had been forgotten. And being who I am, I read every last one of them, of course. And I was struck by the fact that these were patients who were being considered for kidney transplantation. But their files looked different, and the differences seemed to be um, assorted according to race. The files of the black patients were very thin, and those of the white patients were fatter. It's because the ones of the white patients had reams and reams of documentation about their social history, positive, they had positive support from family and friends about their, um, their insurance that made them able to pay for this kind of procedure, and bolstering their claim you know, for a new kidney, the, called the social profile. The social profiles of the other patients, the black ones, everyone had the word Negro stamped on it. And they were, they were thinner. Although, in particular, I saw one, one uh, file that were of a gentleman who had insurance, had a loving family like the other patients. And yet, the um, plan for this patient was not to help him find an organ, but to help him prepare for his imminent demise. And I thought, is it race that's separating these patients from a kidney that they need to live? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it certainly looks suspicious. And I had to know more. And um, I think that triggered my interest. I was, after that, I began looking everywhere to see whether or not black and white patients were being treated equally with the same access to life-saving uh, um, technologies. And dismayingly often, I saw that they were not. I wasn't a writer then. That's the interesting thing. I was running a poison control center, but um, when I became a writer, I knew it would be the first uh, book that I felt passionately about, and it was. After I had the opportunity to train in medical ethics, I spent uh, two and a half years training in medical ethics, and one of the questions I had was that um, there was one study, and seemingly only one study, that was acknowledged and well-known among many people in which African-Americans were mistreated, and that was a Tuskegee study. But I had already learned from my own curiosity, my own research, that there had been many, many studies Many of them, in fact, most of them, much worse than Tuskegee, studies in which African Americans were actively harmed, killed, even, and I wondered why Tuskegee had such a, you know, such root in the American psyche. And I quickly realized it's because that's all people know about. Very often, I would ask people about research with African Americans, clinical people, historians, people who should know, and they would only say Tuskegee. You're, ta you're asking about Tuskegee, right? I'm like, no, I'm asking about everything else. I realized people did not know this history at all. And I went to um international conference in Lübeck, Germany, of historians of medicine, focused on me medical experimentation in the 20th century. And they all said that only Tuskegee had harmed African Americans. I knew that wasn't true. Um, so I began realizing the consequences of not understanding that there had been um, scores and scores of abuse of medical research with African Americans over the decades. The consequences are that very often Tuskegee was dismissed as a terrible thing that happened, but it was accorded 
the fears of African Americans to engage in medical research were accorded to Tuskegee. Well, they don't want to engage in medical research because they're overreacting to Tuskegee. It was called an overreaction to a single study, and I knew that wasn't true. I knew that people were actually reacting to centuries of abuse, and I thought it was really important to document that because nobody else had. When I went to the medical libraries in Europe and in the U.S., prestigious organizations like Harvard's Countway Library, you would find shelves filled with abuses toward whites and other groups, but nothing on the abuse of African Americans, nothing in books. But when I went to the basement and looked at the medical journals from the 18th, 19th century, I saw plenty there, but it was episodic. And I thought, someone needs to pull this together so that people will understand that there's an entire canon of abusive research with African Americans. So people will stop dismissing it as a myth when these were actually all too real. And that's what I did. You know, it would have been good if I could have said the book ended with skiing, that we had learned everything that we should have learned, but we didn't at all. So what's happened is that we have many, many abuses after Tuskegee, at least as many after Tuskegee as beforehand. And there is not a sphere of American medicine that has gone untouched. Radiation experiments, you know, um, experiments with children, reproductive um, abuse in experimentation. Um, it's everywhere. Any sphere in which there's interaction of African Americans with the system, you're going to find their abuse by the system. And in research settings, it was even more prevalent because in research settings, unlike therapeutic set settings, um, there's a laissez-faire attitude often, often reigned. Um, the interesting thing is that today we comfort ourselves that we have this matrix of laws that protect research subjects, and we do. That's a good thing, but laws are only as good as the people who um, enforce them and adhere to them. And all too often the laws are not being adhered to, and even more often we are passing laws now that actually erode informed consent that reduce people's right to say yes or no in medical research. And when we do that, African Americans are often the most um, frequent victims of that. So unfortunately, although we do not engage in the most horrific physical abuses of the 18th and 19th centuries, we still do have many, many research studies that are ethically problematic and frankly abusive. So we still have not learned everything that we should have. The most valuable um, takeaway for students is to understand that they are the people with the least power and the most to lose by implicitly or explicitly criticizing the system, criticizing their professors, criticizing the way medicine is performed. And yet it's absolutely critical that they have the courage to speak up if they think they see something wrong. There are several reasons for that. One reason is that medical students have, in my opinion, a privileged perspective. They're still not completely socialized as doctors. So they still are able to see things from a layperson's point of view. And frankly, most doctors lose that eventually. It's part of the training. And it's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you're socialized into a profession and you gain, frankly, so much more. But as medical students, you still have both worlds. 
you know, you're training as a physician, you have that perspective, but you can still see things from a lay person's perspective. Sometimes only you can see that something is wrong. Sometimes only you can be sensitive enough to understand that something can be abusive. Um, and it's critically important to speak up, even though it's risky, even though it might cost you something, because you may be the only one seeing this wrong, and you may even be successful. You may even convince your attendings, your superiors, your colleagues that they need to reevaluate a practice or reevaluate a stance. So in that way, you can, and students have been, extremely important in advancing ethical thinking in medicine. I'm thinking, for example, of a group of London students. When I was studying medical ethics, in London there were a few students who were being asked to do, as students had been asked to do for decades before them, you're going to learn to do a pelvic examination by practicing on this unconscious woman. She's been prepped for another surgery. She's unconscious. Now's your chance. Learn how to do a pelvic. And some students said, no, I don't want to do this. She hasn't given her permission. She's not awake, which means if I should, I don't know what I'm doing, should I hurt her, she can't even tell me. It's wrong. They convinced their attending. They convinced people in their hospital. That hospital stopped allowing this practice. Other hospitals fell, um, fell in suit. And in this country, some hospitals also no longer allow this. So their vision actually changed the practice of medicine. And that's the most important thing I have to say to medical students. I had hoped when I wrote this book that um, it would inspire other people, especially historians of medicine, to write about some of the issues that I addressed. I hoped it had been my dream that this would actually be viewed as a new, I don't know, become a new canon in the history of medicine, um, that people would explore this history. And I've seen that happen. Uh, there's now been a book um, published on the, uh, I did a chapter on the fate of African Americans immediately around the time of the Civil War. And there's been a book um, published on that very subject. I did a, a section of the book where I talked about the government's propensity for um, supporting psychiatrists who were looking into a connection between violence and race. And um, Someone, Jonathan Metzl, wrote a book, um, The Protest Psychosis, that deals exactly with that. So I'm seeing more and more. Very recently, the New York Times has started a brilliant new series, 1619, uh, to commemorate the 400 years since uh, Africans first set foot on the continent. And in this series, the first session of the series, I'm reading it, and I felt like I was reading my book. I mean, the story of John Brown, which I tell in my book, is there. The story about the vaccination by Onesimus. I mean, all these things I had written in my book 12 years earlier are now in the New York Times, you know, and everyone's reading them. And, I'm, and that's made me very happy. That's what I want to see. I want to see um, more and more people delve into this history and, more importantly, what this history can tell us about what's going on today how we can interpret events today in the light of our history to understand and hopefully not repeat the mechanisms that bring them to bear. Since I wrote Medical Apartheid, I've written several other books, and one of them had to do with the pharmaceutical industry, and it's 
is commercialization of me medicine and medical research, but I've been focusing more lately on cognitive effects of medical, um, I don't know, injuries. Um, I wrote a book called Infectious Madness where I talked about pathogens and their role in mental disease. And a very recently published book um, is about environmental toxicity, environmental po racism. And it's cognitive effects. I mean, we all know that lead causes brain damage. We all know that heavy metals like mercury and arsenic al also do that. But I write about the fact that pathogens, pesticides, even banned pesticides, and PCBs and industrial chemicals all take their toll on human minds. And environmental racism means that they're taking a greater toll on people of color than they are on whites. And all that means. So I started by talking about intelligence, IQ testing, what it really means, what it really tests. And then I go on to explain and document how exposure to all these um, you know, noxious chemicals and pathogens is affecting our intelligence, our collective intelligence, but is disproportionately um, victimizing African Americans. So that's my, that's my current obsession. That was Dr. Harriet Washington, an interview about her book, American Medical Apartheid. And we recommend, if you want to hear more about the issue of racism and disproportionality in medicine in America, both in history and its current status, that this is where you start with Dr. Harriet Washington. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. James Taylor, who was on my board, and now he's not on my board, um, and talk with you more about who we are and who we need to be. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Well, what does it mean when you say that someone doesn't feel pain? Among other things, you're speaking about their humanity. These are all part of that suite of beliefs emanating from the 19th century that we still have not shaken off, despite all our knowledge and sophistication. They're deeply ingrained. Doctors like Sims might fit the Dr. Frankenstein stereotype, but they weren't outliers. Historically, Southern doctors who used black bodies for troubling experiments were the norm. It's a very common question. How can we judge our forebears? You know, those guys in the 18th century who practiced medicine in a way that appalls us today. You know, we think, how could you do that? I did not judge the practitioners based on our own ethics. I judged them based on the ethics of their time. It was not acceptable back then. We just did not hear from the people who protested against Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Hi, I'm Venus Williams. You know, I heard recently that the two main reasons for not getting an annual mammogram are limited access and fear. 
I know that there are low-cost and even free screenings at some hospitals and clinics, and I've even heard of mobile mammogram units in some areas. Talk about service. Look, I know getting a screening is not as exciting as shopping, but life is for living. So take the first step to breast health. Get the mammogram. For more information, please visit breastcancerawareness.com. If Republicans are playing cutthroat politics, why are the Democrats playing that? And why can't they be on the offensive? And that's the first. Here's the second charge. You've got the Republicans beating this whole message of debt. You got Mitt Romney standing in front of a dead clock now. And that will be the narrative. And the Democrats, you don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another debt fight. As they the best of political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete. Urban, progressive, politics, politics, politics. Friday night at TruthWorks Network. 10 p.m., Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health. It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening. It's a cold and crazy world that's raging outside. But baby, me and all my girls are bringing on the fire. Show a little leg, gotta see me your chest. It's a life in the south, it's a need. Our coming ground, speaking truth to power. And I said,
You can't trust this president to do the right thing, not for one minute, not for one election, not for the sake of our country. You just can't. He will not change, and you know it. History will not be kind to Donald Trump. One day, when the glory comes, it will be out, it will be out. Oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Our Common Ground. And thank you so much for being with us. I hope that you were able to learn while listening for liberation uh, on this Saturday night, February 13th, and tomorrow is a holiday that... I don't put too much stock to. It's uh, one of those Walmart. I don't even know. I I, I have no idea uh, who created Valentine's Day, what it really is all about, and so um, I'm not claiming it. I'm not. I don't don't know. So we hope that uh, if you do celebrate it, that... You do it safely, as always. You just do it safely and and enjoy it. But I do want to encourage you to join me on February 15th when we celebrate Black Love Day because it is a holiday. I do know the genesis of that holiday, and that is to affirm, to confirm, and to pledge to engage more in loving each other in our community. So be safe on either one of those. I do want to remind you that um, on Thursday night, Session 3 of the History of Black Political Movements in America, I mean, you you, you can't put a a price there. It is... Priceless what Dr. Uh, Taylor is doing on Thursday night here at our common ground, and I'm really concerned about how why he disappeared on my board, and uh, he is um, missing in action right now. Um, maybe he got a um, call or something, and we hope that uh, he will will join us uh, if he is listening somewhere else. Um, And um, another way, but um, I want to share this with you. Electoral outcome that we had. Now, you got to keep in mind, I'm a political scientist. So my, my thing is politics. If you, if you don't like the idea of me talking about parties, because I know a lot of black folk are quick to say, well, the Democrats are awful. The Democrats ain't no better. What about those Democrats, especially black men? I, I, I get you, brother. I'm with you. I'm already there. 
but but we're talking about politics. Now, the subject is something different, like we shouldn't be a part of the Democratic Party, then I'll talk about that. But what I'm talking about in the meantime is that black people have made political choices in their wisdom, and I think it's a deep wisdom. Um, again, there's not another group that even comes close to black people's intelligence when it comes to voting in, in and out of parties. Black people belonged to one party in America for 100 years when it became too racist, and FDR made some gestures with the New Deal. They, t- they took them another 30 years, and by 1964, they had completely broken from their party after 100 years of, of belonging to the party of Lincoln. And then they chased the racists out. They, 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 Black history matters. You just don't want to miss the Our Common Ground 2021 Black History Special. The history of black political movements in America with Dr. James L. Taylor. Thursdays, 8 p.m. I'm Janice Graham. The history of black political movements in America. Dr. Taylor brings fire to our history. Black History Matters. This lecture series opens up the power of black political history. And we do hope that Dr. Taylor joins us. I just sent him a message, and uh, that was a promo for the Thursday night, Our Common Ground, Black History Month special, which is a four-part lecture series by our political analyst, Dr. James Taylor, who's going to join us in this hour. Our number is 347-838-9852. And one of the things that we want to talk about now is the Senate trial that occurred uh, with and ended, resulted in the acquittal of Donald John Trump um, this afternoon. And many of us um, certainly expected that that is what the result would be. And as I said at the top of the show tonight, um, if you listened to the trial, as I did every day, I was right in it, uh, you know, um, it, it, it started mostly at noon, and today it started early in the morning, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever, and and I will have to give this U.S. House of Representative managers, trial managers, all hats off. Because if you listen to their argument, if you listen through the lenses of black history, you understand that once again, the debate with the Confederacy, 
was taking place. Be clear, we are watching, we were watching the debate in another form at another time that has taken place in this U.S. government about its agency of the Confederacy. As you know, and as I have, I often call the Alpha Show on Friday night because my I don't want my brain to explode on some of this politics stuff. Uh, and last night I was talking to Alpha, uh, and you know Alpha runs his show like he was he's sitting on the corner. And people passing by and they have a little interchange about the politics and what's going on while he's sitting on the crate playing checkers. And one of the things that I reminded Alpho was that this, what we are facing is the Confederacy, a debate about not the slaves but and slavery, but a debate about the oppression, suppression of the descendants of slaves. Dr. James Taylor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Listen, I just want to tell you, I am raving, and my audience will tell you, I am raving about what you're doing on Thursday nights here at Our Common Ground. It is priceless. Thank you. And I appreciate it. Uh, I've been walking around with a little bit more of, of a good feeling in myself uh, this week just because I feel like, <clears throat> you know, at least the information is out there and people can begin to think about it. Think, think, you know, think about things, and you know, pick up sources and try to educate themselves, and realize that, you know, the best education any of us is going to get is what we learn on our own, what we what we study, as as students. We have to all be students. You know, if you're a believer, whether it's Quran or or the Christian, you know, the Bible, you know, you're told to study, and and so many of our people who are not college educated. Or you know, or, or have having college backgrounds, still study a lot, you know, in the black community because of the influence of those religious texts. So mm-hmm. you know, we just have to encourage people to continue to study, um, to show themselves approved as black men and black women who need not be ashamed, you know, perfectly framed in every good work that our black ancestors have put before us, you know, and and let that's me, let what me, I, let me tell you how. How blessed I was as as I was listening to you, and I have I have listened to session two twice now. Um, I interviewed in 1991. One day I was on an interview with on our common ground with the minister Louis Farrakhan. Wow. The next day. I was on the phone interviewing, talking. I don't call what I do interviewing. Uh, uh, having a discussion with Vincent Harding. Wow. I went back and looked at my schedule, my production wow. always all the way back in 1991. And the next day, 
I was talking with Haki, Dr. Haki Matabuti. Nice. Yep. And yep. I'm saying to myself, damn, girl, you, you've been, uh, 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 you know that song, I've been all around the world, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, but anyway, yes, yes. <laughs> you had me, and, and, and I went to check, and I think, I thought my daughter had read There is a River. Mm-hmm. She couldn't remember. I couldn't remember. Mm-hmm. And I went back to check to see if I had given it to my grandson, who's a freshman at Stanford. Mm. And he just finished his first social justice class where he made an A. And right. I had been supplementing his class. <laughs> I was That's thinking, right. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I had been supplementing his class uh, with with materials. And I went to check. Did I give him There is a River? Because he's a big reader. And I had sent it to him when he was a junior in high school. Wow. And Rachel Harding, who has be- really become a friend, wow, uh, was on our common ground after we came to the Internet. Because all that other stuff was when, we, when I was in terrestrial ra- uh, radio. Okay. But you had me in tears on Thursday night. I mean, I was sitting here quietly when you talked about the power of our wisdom from our experience and marching through our history. I couldn't stop crying. I'm not a crier. Yeah, I am. Alpha, I don't know. But anyway, thank you so very I can never be more grateful and 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 you've had me thinking a lot about gratitude uh, and and how grateful we are that they endured for us, but still lifted us up for us to do so much to contribute and to persevere in our demand to have agency in this country. And I, I really can never thank you enough. Thank you so very much. You can have your own show every week, blah, blah, no, blah. I, pre- I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. And I, and I really am sad today. My heart is broken. I've been, you know, had to isolate myself from my family because I, I, really, I was realizing I was really snappy and angry all day. And I realized what it was was this uh, outcome of the Senate, Senate trial. Uh, process. Yeah. I was just... <laughs> And I'm sure I'm not the only one, you know, that was just, I was just in a bad mood yep. all day because of it. And I, I snapped at my daughter and snapped at my, 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 my son. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to isolate myself in the room and just stay away because I know what's wrong with me. I told my, my family, I'm like, look, I'm upset about the Trump thing. Sorry. Um, and right now I'm not good to talk to anybody because I'm just so full. I, you know, I'm just, yeah. so, I'm just sort of tired of white people just being racist. And, and they should be tired of it, too, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. generation of white people find a way to be racist, and this is mm-hmm. our era. Mm-hmm. This is a moment. We've seen it. Our, you've seen it enough times. I've seen it enough times, but I'm talking about for the youngins now. This is their moment of revelation of white racism, 
and how racism, mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to be discreet. I'm not going to try to define the good white from the bad white. You know why? Because it don't make a difference if we got a bunch of good white people. Does it? Does it matter that, that we got good white people in America right now? I mean, does it really matter? Because the outcome is there are no white people, good white people in America. It's just the bad ones that are winning all the time. And the good ones keep coming around making us feel better about losing to the bad ones. And that's why I don't want to talk to liberals. I don't want to hear from liberals. I don't want CNN. There's nobody on CNN, black, white, male, female, gay, straight, that, that can talk to me because I feel like CNN primed the whole country to accept this by constantly cycling the probability that he's not going to be convicted. And I think they put and create a psychological conditioning and they taint the jury. They tainted the jury pool, CNN did. Fox wasn't even showing it, so Fox didn't do this. CNN and MSNBC, the liberals, and don't forget MSNBC is the racist, is owned by the racists that, that Byron Allen had to, had to sue because they, weren't, they used a, the, the, I think it was Viacom, they used a, a, a slave law uh, about the slave trade um, to try to stop Byron Allen from getting part, partnership. That's MSNBC, the liberal channel. Let me say that again. Look at the Byron Allen case versus Viacom, MSNBC, the parent company of MSNBC, and see if they don't invoke a 19th century anti-law uh, uh, related, uh, related to Congress's ability to regulate interstate commerce, and the commerce was black slavery, black slave trade. And, and, and that's, the, that's the most friendly white channel on TV, because CNN tries to be both sides. That's how they started back with Novak uh, and, and, you know, when they would have, you know, uh, what was it called? It was called Two Sides or Both Sides with Pat Buchanan and all those guys back in the day. Um, and so that's CNN's reputation. CNN will have, uh, 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 what's his name, um, Mitch, uh, 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 what's this guy's name, uh, the former senator of Pennsylvania. Um, uh, let me slow myself down. Um, Oh, boy, uh, 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 Rick Santorum, Rick Santorum. They've been having Rick Santorum on. you got to remember this, Ms. Graham. It, the white man that looked like a skinhead that became the attorney general acting, a big, muscular white man like a wrestler, like he was from WWF, he became the AG right before Barr, right before Barr. And he was this dummy nobody knew. Yeah. And, uh-huh. and, he, and uh-huh. he became the attorney general for like a month and a half. Please understand Trump took him off of the – off of CNN as a guest, a guest analyst, and they took him off CNN and made him a attorney general, and CNN has never owned up for it. CNN created Kay, uh, uh, Kaylee McElhaney, not Fox. That wasn't Fox. CNN did that. CN, CNN gave us that blonde white girl who had been lying to us for four years, and CNN won't own up to that. So this is why I don't think we need to be running around here trying to have white friends. I think John Henry Clark and Elijah Muhammad were right. We ain't got none. And if you got some, let them be temporary. Because if you try to hold on to it, you'll understand the betrayal. We got betrayed today. And this is what I don't think we understand. I'm hurt because I have three children who are teenagers, who are young. And I know the hell black people just inherited today is 80, got di- 80 more years of struggle is coming. That's what today, that's what happened today, Ms. Graham. Please understand, it's about the future. They keep talking about it. This is about history. The eyes of history are on this. Well, when they say that, they can't be meaning the past. They mean the history of the future. And that means your grandson's 
life is the history they're talking about, the next 60 to 70 years. My children's lives, the next 60 to 70 years. That's the history that they're saying is going to judge Trump. So what our children and our grandchildren have seen and what they recall and what they say about now is going to matter. And I knew, I said this on your show every time you let me on for the last three times, that they will sell us out. I said it. Yes. White, the white North yes. and white South reunited at our expense, and they gave us Jim Crow. From the 1876 presidential election, I'm here to teach you the cycles of American history. That's what I'm talking about, cycles. Every 30 years we go through this because it represents a generation of white liars who emerge and promise they're going to do something, or they're a generation of white racists who try to do a backlash. It's either or, but they're both white liars. The left and the right, Ms. Ms., Ms. Graham, they play with us every 30 years. I'm trying to break it down so you can see the cycle. From the New Deal to the Great Society is the white folk trying to do something about it. Ronald Reagan is the backlash to that. That's been 30 years from 1980 to where we are now, 20, uh, uh, 2020. It was 2008, 2010 when Obama was elected. That was 30 years from Reagan. And then Trump is the backlash to Obama. What, what part of, as you said in the very beginning of, this, of, of your comments to me, of, about the Confederacy, and I'm here to explain to people, if they are willing to learn, that Abraham Lincoln was on the wrong side of the American Revolution. And if you hear what I'm telling you, if you get that, then you'll understand that these racists are on the right side of the Founding Fathers. The racists are right, not Abraham Lincoln. Not Martin Luther King, not Eleanor Roosevelt. I'm trying to help you understand that in order to fix America, you've got to kill the original idea that the founders established of white over all others. Because Jefferson Davis is the right heir of Thomas Jefferson, not Abraham Lincoln. And the lie, Ms. Graham, is that Abraham Lincoln is the next big thing. The truth is... Abraham Lincoln is the revolutionary against the American Revolution. Let me say that again to you. Abraham Lincoln is the American revolutionary against the American Revolution. The, Re the American Revolution was pro-slavery. I asked my students at the university last, for, for the last two semesters, a room full of 100 students, Ms. Graham, and I asked them, please explain to me how slavery survived the American Revolution. Slavery had been around since the 16, 16, 16, uh, 16 teens. The American Revolution happens 1776. So that's 160 years later. So that wasn't no new institution. So why didn't that institution get broken with the revolu revolution? I've also tried to explain on this show how women actually lost power with the American Revolution. And nobody else is going to tell you this, but I've studied it. And you can, too. If you study, all you got to do is get a book. Go to Amazon and order a book that talks, any book. Put the, the America, women in the American Revolutionary Period. And if you get a book, any book that explains the, the political situation of women in the American Revolutionary Period, before the revolution in the colonies, women had the right to vote. Famously, I explained to my students that Abigail Adams, the wife of John Adams, the mother of John Quincy Adams, when the president and when John Adams and Alexander Hamilton and all of the other framers, minus Thomas Jefferson and uh, 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 well, actually John Adams, uh, yeah, minus Thomas Jefferson, 
um, and they met in Philadelphia. Abigail Adams told John Adams, be careful to tend to the women or we will rise up against you. So she promised there will be a woman's revolution against the American revolution if you don't take care of the women. But, Ms. Graham, most women who are happy about the right of women in 2020, last year, it was the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which is called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. The 19th Amendment. The Susan B. Anthony Amendment was passed in 1920, right? Um, And so, uh, uh, 1919, excuse me. So we just had the the 100th anniversary of it. And what people uh, people, uh, were celebrating... What was celebrating um, was actually women getting the right to vote uh, uh, back in 19 um, – I'm throwing myself off around – but in 1920 um, that they lost – listen, listen, listen. I'm trying to give you the genealogy of the racism, and I'm giving you the genealogy of the sexism from the American Revolution. I'm trying to help you see that the racists are on the right side of the founding fathers and you're not and you keep trying to make the the founding fathers good men that's your problem you're trying to make them into these philosopher kings that the american state has created them to be but they were 53 racists 51 at the very least the only one who was an openly racist is is adams the rest of them Elbridge, Jer- I mean, uh, uh, um, uh, James, May- uh, George Mason. George Mason owns 500 human beings in, in Philadelphia. George Mason University should change its name, but but it ain't. And there's hundreds and thousands of black people who have to, uh, a college degree on their wall named with George Mason's name on it. A man who owned more people than anybody else at Philadelphia in 1787. Thomas Jefferson wasn't there. He was in Phil- He was in Paris when he began. Re- for a lifelong raping of Sally Hemings, who was 14 years old when it began. So, so Miss Miss Graham, I think what I'm trying to get—I said this last class, last time we talked. If you if you if you have a simple pen and paper and draw a line down any middle in any direction and make it like a wishbone and split it at the tip, like like a crossroads or or, or a split a, a split road. The, if, if the left road is uh, the Confederacy and the right road is the Union, if the left uh, uh, road is Jefferson Davis and the right road is Lincoln, and the beginning, the beginning road is the American Revolution, and if you drive down that down that street and you and you stop at the middle of left Jefferson Davis or right Abraham Lincoln, I'm trying to make it as plain as I can for the people listening. The the true genealogy is left where Jefferson Davis is. And, that, and, 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 the, and the simplest way for you to, to, to trace that back is go rewind to who the founders were. They were slaveholders. And they never renounced it. They never apologized. They never said it was morally wrong. They never condemned it. They just took care of it, protected it for 20 years from 1787 to 1807 when it finally, the slave trade dies in America in, uh, in 1807 under Jefferson. But then slavery, the institution, prevails into the 1860s and causes war. America actually spells the word race. If you, if you, if you, it, the, the word America spells I am race. Uh, undo it. Undo it. Undo it. Spell it. I am race. America. I am race. Unscramble America and see if you can't spell I am race. And then you can make up, you probably can, you know, make up a couple other words. Yeah, I'm sure you can. But 
I also know whatever else you try to throw up there and say, or oh, we can spell car, or we can spell race, or we can spell I, whatever, you, or cram, whatever, go ahead and play with that. Have fun at it. But it still says I am race. Two, no matter what else you try to trivialize it with. And that, and, and that to me, um, uh, even though it was named after Vespucci, to me that tells us, that tells us all we need to know. I don't believe America is a country. I believe America is a system of racism. I think America is a racism. It's not a country. It's a racism. And once you understand that, everything you see will come clear to you. This is approaching what Neely Fuller, uh, the, the, the professor who's still alive, of the late um, uh, Francis Cress Welsing, uh, with her book, The ISIS Papers, where he says, until you understand white supremacy, Everything else about you, around you, is going to confuse you. And, Ms. Graham, I'm not confused. I'm clear on what I've experienced today. And I know what happened today represents 70 years from now. It's not about Trump no more. These, these, these senators, I've always, and I'm going to apologize to my students, and I, and I really I said to myself out loud today, I should resign from teaching at the university. Because I've been lying to my students, telling them for decades, for 20 years, that the U.S. Senate was above every other branch in government, including even the Supreme Court. That these are 50 independent, that these are 100 independent people. This is what I lied my, to my students and told them. I told them that the 50 senators are more independent than the House of Representatives, the 435 members, and that's why the Speaker of the House is so powerful because all of their power is bound up in her or, or in her in her, where, and they don't get to have the individual power. She represents them. The Speaker does. So all of the power of the 435 is bundled up in one person, the Speaker. The speaker is as powerful as any senator because she has all 40, 30, 435 people in her body as her power, in her caucus. Now, so Nancy is, or the speaker, but right now it's Nancy, is the equal of the 100 senators in terms of political power. The, the speaker becomes president before any senator does. In fact, the senators ain't even in the succession of president, but the speaker is. So the speaker is extremely powerful because she has to keep in control 435 people. So they give her the power, they give her the majority, the minority, the, the majority whip, um, and 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 the ranking member to keep everybody in line in terms of the 435. So that's what Clyburn's job is. Anybody step out of line, Clyburn says we will take away the fund in your in your district if you don't vote for, uh, with, with the speaker. And that's how they, you know. That's how they whip them together. Now, the senators are supposed to be 100 presidents, Ms. Graham. That's what, that, that's what they're really supposed to represent, 100 presidents. And then the president is, the number, is 101. This, and, and this is easy to understand if you compare the American system to the British or the Israeli prime, prime minister and parliamentary system where you have a president and a prime minister, and that works like our president is like our prime minister and our vice president is like their, um, their, uh, you know, their, um, their, their president. They, they, they will call their VP president, and they will call their president prime minister. So Tony Blair was prime minister, or um, uh, Lee, uh, T T Theresa May was prime minister, but they also have a president that nobody ever gets to know outside the country. So that's the president. So, the, so, so, so 
um, you know, that's the reality of, of what we face um, is, is this kind of circumstance. And um, what to me happened today was the senatorial leaders, and this is why I don't like Chuck Schumer. I, I think Chuck Schumer is bad for black people. There's nothing that black people want or need that Chuck Schumer agrees with. What does Chuck Schumer agree with on us? He's he down for his people. He's going to protect his race, his group, his clan, his tribe, his people in New York. I'm from New York. So, 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 so please be clear. I know, I know, I know New York. It is in my blood as I speak to you. I know Jewishness. I know Italianness. I know Irishness. I grew up with Italians, Jews, Irish kids since I was born. A New York perspective of ethnicity, of white ethnicity, is a, a perspective that is clear because even in New York, they don't intermingle with each other. New Yorkers know that white people ain't one thing. New Yorkers know that Italians don't live over in uh, Bensonhurst. New Yorkers know Italians don't live over in the Crown Heights. You know, uh, you know and, and Jews don't live over in, in Little Italy because they're clear markers, right? But when it came to us, the white South and the white North have always found a way to recover. And I knew it was coming. I kept saying to everybody, they're going to sell us out. And what I mean, what has happened is this. Just like in Reconstruction, the white North and white South said, okay, we'll reunite uh, and we'll, give the ne- we'll take out the army out of the South, because that's the compromise right there. They take the, 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 the soldiers out the South, and then the white clan and the gray uniforms go crazy on us for the next 75 years. They unleash the devil on us, the South. That's what, the, 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 that's what our party did. And I said this on your show the other night. That's what our party, the party of Lincoln sold us out for 75 years in the 1876 presidential contest. If, 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 if they didn't sell us out, you wouldn't have needed Garvey, you wouldn't have needed Du Bois, you wouldn't have needed Ella Baker, you wouldn't have needed King, you wouldn't have needed uh, Betty Shabazz, you wouldn't have needed Queen Audley Moore, uh, Mother Moore, you wouldn't have needed Fannie Lou Hamer, you wouldn't have needed uh, 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 Amy Garvey, you, you wouldn't have needed any of our great people who have responded to the contradiction of America. But it took one presidential election, only one, 1876, and it was the party that black people belonged to that did it to them. They were in the majority, Ms. Graham, like they are right now. When the election in 1876 broke down, just like Al Al Gore versus Bush in 2000, this happened about eight times in America in the 19th century, starting with the first presidential election in 1800. The Electoral College didn't work. It didn't work in 1828 with Andrew Jackson and, um, and, uh, and, and John Quincy Adams' son. It didn't work again in 1895 or 96 on, on Benjamin uh, Harrison. This man lost, uh, won the popular vote twice and, and didn't become president because of the Electoral College. He was Al Gore twice. Um, uh, and, and then it almost failed again in 1960 with Nixon versus uh, JFK. And then it failed in 2000, uh, or the Electoral College picked the 2000 president, and the Electoral College picked the 2016 president. The Republicans, because they are a racist white regional southern party with, a, 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 and in the Midwest, cannot win without the Electoral College anymore. They can't win without voter suppression. They can't win in a democracy. So what we have been given is a white apartheid, Ms. Graham, we've got to sound the alarm now because here's how it played out before. 
1877 to 1895, it had already set in from 18 from the case from the from the from the presidential election from 1877 on. The racism was MAGA. It was back. Full-fledged, the Union soldiers left, and 1877, black hell resumed. And then it didn't even become law yet, Ms. Graham. It, just, it was just a practice until 1896. Plessy versus Ferguson validates all the evil that happens to black people between 1876 and 1896. So the courts finally catch up to the racism of the presidency. So the president betrays us, Congress betrays us in 1876, and then the court sanctifies that betrayal in 1896 with Plessy v. Ferguson. So the whole system of America worked against us after we got free. And we have to understand, it was our party that did it, not the racists that hated us, but the party of Lincoln did it. And I'm saying, now you got Chuck Schumer. Something happened today, Ms. Graham, when they were in that meeting, they, they were talking about witnesses. Now, I gr- agree with everybody's analysis that w- witnesses wouldn't have mattered. These devils went in with their minds made up. So let's not torture the Democrats and talk about what the Democrats didn't do right. They, did, they were perfect, as perfect as a prosecution you've ever seen in your life. You ain't never seen a prosecution like that sister from the Virgin Islands put forth. All of y'all fell in love with her. And with uh, the, the young African brother, the young, uh, the young Eritrean brother, and then uh, with the young Latin, with the you know uh, the Castro brother, and then uh, the, the white woman and, uh, and the whole team of managers, they were superior. They were better than the, the managers from Trump's first impeachment last year. They were way better than they than, than last year. Yeah. So so yeah. finally, I, I think we, ha- we you know what we have to understand is we're in that 1877 or 1877 to 1896 period, Ms. Graham, this is the dangerous period where the racism is now back, and it's reset, and now all we need, Ms. Graham, listen to me, please, please listen to me. All we need is one ruling, one case. It only takes one case, one Supreme Court ruling to reestablish Jim Crow in America. That's where we are. And Martin Luther King's lawyers, listen to me, are still alive. Martin Luther King's attorneys are still alive. The men who helped Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King are still alive. And before they die, Clarence Jones and Fred Gray, before they both die, they are watching the resumption of Jim Crow in America. So we're in that now period of 1877 to 1896. Mm -hmm. And all we need is for Amy Comey Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, um, uh, 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 maybe not John Roberts because he done been, he was so he he's become the, the 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 moderate on the court when he's a hard right conservative himself. But this Italian racist Alito, he ain't nothing but an Italian racist, and nothing but an old Italian racist. I'm from New York. I, Italians hate us. Italians hate black people in New York, and we don't hate them back. Mm-hmm. That's the sad thing. They hate us, but we don't hate them back. You know, why, why we run around with this stupid. We, we, we run around with Scarface in our in our in our offices on our walls, right? As if he's Italian. Of course, he wasn't. But Al Pacino. You know, my point is the whole Godfather thing. We valorizing their culture and they hating us. That's what's wrong with yeah, hip hop. Yeah. 
upside down. You loving and valorizing the people that despise your people. And 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 so for me, it's like. Um, what we're in now is a dangerous time because we, all we got to do now is get a ruling from five of these judges. And Trump got six. And he said he wants them to behave a certain way. And Amy Coney Barrett, who everybody done forgot about already, she's going under the radar. But we didn't even get to vet Miss Graham that she has a ruling and an opinion that is perfectly fine for a white boss to call a black person the N-word at work. And it ain't racism. So that's who that's the that's yeah. in the majority yeah. now. So we're in trouble. That's what today represents. So if you if you if you sense my urgency, yes, you should be upset too. You should be angry too. You should be troubled too because what happened today, it could have gone a different way. It could have gone where they prosecuted Donald Trump. The country would celebrate and say, "Okay, now we can reset." But what they did, Miss Graham, was gave cocaine to Frankenstein. They gave crack to Frankenstein. Yeah. Frankenstein was dead on the bed, Ms. Graham. Trump has been dead since we killed him with Georgia. We killed Trump. And these racist devils, they breathe back life into this devil. And everybody keeps saying, why? Why They're scared of Trump. Ms. Graham, it just came out that more than a third of the, of the senators who, who voted to acquit Trump don't face re-election for six years. Some of them yeah, don't face yeah. election anytime soon. So, so, so finally, I think we need to stop this nonsense of separating the racism of Ke- of Kevin McCartney or Marco Rubio from Trump. They are the same racist. These are not a yep. look. Lindsey Graham is a racist, a homosexual racist at that. So, so for me, we need to stop running around calling everybody our friends. And, 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 and realize that we are a, under siege, and the Supreme Court is the last step. We, all we need now to go back to apartheid, and I want to again say, when you study the history of apartheid, study South Africa, study America, and study uh, Israel, uh, study Germany in the 1930s. Study the Nuremberg Laws, study apartheid South Africa, and you'll understand that both Germany under Hitler and yeah. the nationalists, of South Africa under a devil named Vurvert. His name was Vurvert, and he was their Trump. And if you want to understand the history of South Africa, in 1948, the white races shocked the country and win in 48. And it wasn't that, listen to me, Ms. Graham, it wasn't the devil who won in 46 or 48. It was the, listen, it was the next guy. Vurvert was the, the guy who becomes the main devil to destroy black people with apartheid, but he wasn't the guy who won. Like Trump, Trump knocked down the door. Now the next devil is the one who reestablishes apartheid. I'm trying to say that's what happened in, in South Africa in 1948. The, de- the racist devil um, wasn't the first one. The, the first one shocked the world and won in 1946 uh, or 48. But the one yeah, who yeah. really brings in racism is the next guy. And so that's what we're in trouble for. Trump has set the table for the net, for a Frankenstein racist to come into America and 71 white uh, million white 71 million white people voted for this so i think we're in trouble i think america is headed for a a a, a system of three different uh, countries i think america is about to split up in three with the south and midwest being one country uh, a, a, a white country and i think the rest of the country is going to have to figure out how it's going to organize itself yeah let's go, let's go to our phones i i, I think I think you're 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 right on point, uh, and and I am listening, Doctor Taylor. I am seven seven three. You're on with Doctor James Taylor at our common ground. How you doing, Janice? 
Dr. Taylor, how are you this evening? I'm great, sir. Well, I'm not so great, but go ahead. <laughs> well, well, Dr. Taylor, you're about as great as you're going to be. And I'm going to say this, and I want you to understand, I am with you wholeheartedly. However, those who are the lesser of two evils are the ship which we must right. sail on. Right. And I think you understand that you are not going to get everybody to study this, study that, study this. You have to understand this vote for no witnesses, there's a different agenda. There's a longer game that they want to say that they were playing. What all they were doing was, this, was the expedience of getting this behind them yep. for Donald Trump. Yep. But we as a people, we have to remember one thing, and it's still early. Biden rode black people to the White House. Black women to the White House. Georgia rode black people, especially black women, to head the Senate. There's an election in two years. We can't continue to grow angry because it has not come to fruition yet. You will have your cake and ice cream <laughs> later on in life. And I'm 68 years old. I don't know, you might have me by a few years, or I might have you by a few years. Right. But I have come to the point where I'm basically resolute to the fact that either way it goes, I may not be here when it happens, but it's going to happen. So don't no, I, I, I do believe that, too. I, you know, I've said that, I think, in the last two shows, I've said that, you know, part of what I've appreciated from a recent discovered speech of King, a new speech discovered of King, is him talking about We Shall Overcome as opposed to singing it. And he explains that the basis of the song is the confidence of our black history, what we've done. And that's what we don't understand when we sing that song, We Shall Overcome. It's actually saying we already beat slavery. We already beat Jim Crow. We already beat convict leasing. We already beat peonage. We already beat sharecropping. We already beat, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, you know. Um, and it, com- it, comes out, it comes out as we shall overcome. But what I'm saying is, you could say that, too. You could just sing those lyrics I just sang, because that's what King is really saying. He's saying that we will overcome because look at what we've done. And, and that's why I think we, get, we keep getting disconnected from the victorious moments of our history uh, so that we keep um, sort of reinventing the wheel every generation, wasting 30 years trying to, you know, every generation trying to get to a point where the previous generation already was. So we should be beyond black power. We should, the Black Lives Matter should start where black power left off rather than trying to reproduce black power, you know, in terms of the the militancy and things of that sort. They should be, as I've said on the show before, Black Lives Matter and and, and all the other movements that are going on next to it today should be, you know, starting with the, the, you know, breakfast programs, sickle cell programs, uh, you know, uh, schools. They should be starting with Fred Hampton and Huey Newton and uh, Erica Huggins and um, Elaine Brown ended. And that was not with the guns, but with the black civil society. We need the revival of black civil society. So I agree with you, brother, completely. I know we can't do it alone, but, but, but you know, I'm like Ali. You know, I saw an interview with Ali the other day, and, and there was some white person asking him a question. And they wanted to play games with him and want him to parse out 
you know, who, which white is which white. And that's the game I think is being played with us. That's how I feel. That's why I'm on. That's why I'm responding to CNN and not Fox. I'm saying to you, CNN gave us Rick Santorum. CNN gave us the racist. Uh, you know, uh, gave us Kelly Kelly McElhaney. CNN gave us that bald head dude that was ahead of the. They so so Trump would watch CNN and pick his people. And CNN is supposed to be our friend, a liberal. And then the other one is the race uh, MSNBC, who's done more to try to set us back, put us back on the plantation than Fox has. MSNBC and they got away with it. Byron, uh, 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 just uh, uh, Byron Allen just set an agreement with them about five days ago. Uh, 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 you know, a, a non-disclosure agreement with them uh, on the settlement just a few days ago. But it was all about a, a 19th-century slavery clause, and and MSNBC Viacom tried to bring it back alive in the 21st century, just like Trump brought the 19th-century insurrection law when he did the Bible incident. That was based on an anti-slavery thing he did. And 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 so what I'm saying to us. Is, is we're already the frog in the pan that's been turning up slow, so we can't feel it. And then one day in the next 10, 15 years, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett going to give us an opinion that lets us know we was being cooked all along. That's 1876, 1896. That's where we are now. We're in between, we're, we're in between the, 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 the 1876 presidential election, that's 2016, and the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson case. And I'm saying, with everything being set up the way it is, the court is set up a certain way with a majority of conservatives. The uh, Republicans have found a way to keep winning even when they're losing. Think about it. Mitch McConnell won today, and he ain't even in power no more. The Republicans are in the minority, and they won today. Think about that. They've been whooping the Democrats when they had Obama. Oh, he, they couldn't get Gorsuch, right? So, so for me, it's like, Whatever we've been doing, we can't keep doing. So if I sound too angry or too passionate, I think we need to break some things in terms of, of these pre-existing modalities of engagement. Because I think I'll say that. Let me just say this real quickly. I think um, I think you know. Look at the return. Black people gave Nancy Nancy Pelosi the gavel. Like you said, black women did that in 2018. In a record fashion, black people outperformed white people in a midterm. Black people gave us AOC. Black people gave us Rashida Tlaib. Black people gave us the squad. Black people gave us Cori Bush. All of that was just November 2018, brother. So black people said, here, Nancy, take the gavel. That's why Marshall Folks was the first one to challenge Nancy. The Congressional Black Caucus said, don't give Nancy the gavel. Nancy betrayed us in the previous cycle with Bush. Give the gavel to a black leader of the Congressional Black Caucus. So that one of the elders in the Congressional Black Caucus, not the young girls, not the young women, not the militants, but, but Marshall Folks, Folks yeah. challenged her. And so then we still end up losing after we give them our support, and I think we lost today. Well, I think no, we Corey, Corey Bush, the the representative from Missouri, was right on point today when her uh, when when she expresses that back the blue senators voted to acquit the former president after they helped incite a white supremacist insurrection that left police officers dead. And it was never, she says, it was never about blue lives mattering. It was just about making sure black lives don't. And I That's applaud right. her for that. Alpha, you want to um, you wanna make a, a summary well, comment? 
I want to close out with this with Dr. Taylor. I get I get fantastic knowledge from what uh, Dr. Taylor uh, disseminates to us. The young Black Lives Matter, they're young people. They're in a learning process. The reason that the cycle continues to evolve is that right. it's a cycle. Yep. And the and every time that we start out with the same things. Right. Dr. Taylor, we are not going to go down that avenue. MSNBC right. has to be the progressive voice. We must basically funnel our displeasures and knowledge through an MSNBC. CNN is not. And we have to understand that all of them are owned by conservative corporations. Right. But thank you very much, Dr. Taylor. Yes, sir. Thank you. And I appreciate your feedback. Thank you for your call, Alfo. No, and I, and I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the, the, you know, the gentle um, admonition. Um, the friendly, the friendly um, amendment, um, because I don't want to be indiscriminate and think that all white people are not um, are against us, because they're not. I, 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 I've done a bunch of presentations this week to all kinds of organizations around the country, including the FBI. I actually gave a presentation to them, and and um, one of the things I have tried to show was the reaction of young and and not so young white people in reaction to the George Floyd movement. We have to hold that image up in our memory against the white reaction we saw on January 6th. We have to hold June 2020 up and, and uh, 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 April and June 2020, when, 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 when it all culminated in uh, Juneteenth, um, we have to hold that up. We have to hold up those young people. Those are my students. Those are, those are young people that listen to you, Ms. Graham, who are white, um, who are Latino, who are Asian, who are gay, who are straight. Uh, who are who are out there on the front lines right now today? They're out in the streets right now, in police's faces, in racist faces. Um, but what I'm talking about is that every no, no matter what the effort, Miss Graham, you come from the most radical generation of Black people heretofore. Your generation was the most revolutionary generation of black people that built on the generation of the Garvey movement, built on the dislocations of World War II, came out of the 60s and 70s wanting to change the world, and they did immediately in ways that no generation has ever changed um, uh, uh, American history outside of the American Revolution. And, and George Washington and them were all born in England. So, I mean, so, so, so the Black Power era generation was the most revolutionary generation for black people to study. And, 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 and for me, there's a lot of data and wisdom in it about ideology, about uh, wrong turns, about ego tripping, about celebrity, about a bunch of people running their mouths, always talking, trying to sound revolutionary. But but when you ask them, do they you know have they have they taken care of you know do they have have they you know made sure their sons are fed and their daughters are fed? They they, they haven't talked to them in two years. Um, those contradictory people. Um, but it but it's also to me necessary and incumbent upon every generation heretofore to consult it. Otherwise, they have no right to be involved in, our, in the movement. If, you don't, if you're not willing to study, because, the, the, you know, at least the Panthers, I, I've talked to many of them. I'm in Oakland. 
where they were and where, where they all are. Angela Davis is still here. Every, Frederica Newton is here. I can drive to I can drive to Frederica Newton's house and David Hilliard's house right now. I know where they live right around the corner. But a lot of the Panther leadership is still in Oakland. Um, that's why Black Lives Matter is alive, out of Oakland. Um, but we've actually, you know, I think have to understand that America is on the verge of splitting up. And we don't have an ideology, Ms. Graham, suited for it because we've been so blindly conditioned to accept integration as our natural course in America. Yeah. The NACP yeah. to King is about uh, 55 years of the liberal integrationist ideology. We've been here 400 years, 60 years of that. Listen to me classically. Do the math. We've been here 400 years at least since uh, 16, 19, 14, uh, and 2019. And I'm saying the civil rights idea, the integrationist idea, really kicks in with the NACP in 1909, and it culminates in 1965. That's 56 years. That's not. So we still got another 350 years here, Ms. Graham. What we going? What we do with the? Uh, what was we doing, Ms. Graham, with the other 350 years we've been in America when we wasn't trying to do integration? See, that's the thing nobody talks to us about. That's what you can get here on our yeah. um, on our common ground. You ain't gonna get nowhere else. Because Cornell West don't talk like this. Cornell West is too busy trying to love everybody. Everybody's his brother. And that's how we stay on the bottom. Because we are the most Christian, the most Muslim, the most submitted people on the planet in America. Black people are. The, the yeah. largest group of Muslims Black in America are not Arabs. They're Negro black Americans from the, nation, the former yeah. nation of Islam that followed um, uh, 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 Wallace Muhammad. Dr. Taylor, we're going to have to break off here, but I hope that everyone will join you on Thursday night uh, to continue to talk to, uh, to 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 continue to have the discussion about where we enter now. Yes. You know, I have described what happened uh, this week was the debate about race. Right about the race and agency of our citizenry and the value for which this country holds our contributions. And, and, and I real really quickly, look all, all, all I'm saying, Ms. Graham, real quickly, I'll take 10 seconds. What I'm saying is we, we need an ideology to accept that. What if America splits up? What do we do then? That's where all those ideas like the, the, you know, the, the Republic of New Africa, Imari Obadeli, the, the, the Henry brothers out of Detroit, the, you know, the brothers that ran in Cobra, their idea now makes sense. We have to, Carol Cruz talks about this. What if America decides to become three separate states because of this racism that we just saw try to take over the Capitol, and yeah. now they just gave a Trump new breath, new, new breath, like Frankenstein. He's going to come back and haunt. So now what? So I yeah, think we need is. to think about nationalism or something similar. Sorry. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Dr. Taylor, and thank you, Alpha, for your call, and thank, uh, thanks to everyone who have joined us tonight. Uh, on Thursday night, and you can Google it, uh, there will be um, a discussion on the House Bill H.R. 40 regarding reparations for the descendants of chattel slavery in America, and I hope that you have to register. So thank you so very much, and see you on Thursday at 8 o'clock next Saturday here as we close out Black History Month at Our Common Ground. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. 
Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I think it has to do with organized greed, organized hatred, and organized corruption. Not just in the White House, but it's the ways in which Wall Street domination, the ways in which the Pentagon, military and money, big military and money have come together and are beginning to suck out the rich energies of one of the great democratic experiments in the modern world, the USA, and all of its flaws. Democratic elements and democratic practices seem to be so weak and feeble. Well, I think America has to acknowledge itself as an empire, make the connection between the the militarizing that's taking place domestically, police, mass incarceration, and the 800 military bases, and the 211 interventions in 67 countries since 1945, that connection between militarism abroad, militarism internally, needs to be wrestled with something that Martin Luther King Jr. understood very well before his death in 1968. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.